0: Back again with another edition of Securiosity. But first, we're close. We're close to it. FedScoop presents DC Cloud Week, a citywide festival bringing together thousands of government and tech leaders from around the nation to share how the cloud is transforming government Academia, nonprofits, and the private sector. The week long festival consists of events like community conferences, events, and parties, and it's anchored by Fed Talks, the largest annual gathering of the top 1,000 C level leaders from the GovTech community. I know we've been working hard and the community's come together. We have a ton of events on the calendar, some really, really interesting stuff. And it's not just cybersecurity, it's cybersecurity, web development, app development, AI, all different types of stuff going on. So for more information, check out dccloudweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to, to Curiosity for May 24th. I'm Greg Otto.
1: And I'm Jen O'Daniel, live from Collision in Toronto, ready to bring you the world's best weekly wrap of Infosec news.
0: The spotlight has been on Huawei this week, and the ramifications have changed about four times in 96 hours. We'll take you through what it all means.
1: In our interview, we talked to Justin Chitak, a researcher with Baffin Bay Networks. Justin talks about his approach to finding bad actors and what recent infosec indictments bother him the most.
0: Huawei wasn't the only Chinese company filling the heat from the U.S. government, and another hugely popular service was found to be storing its users' passwords in plain text. How does this keep happening? (laughs) Let's talk about it.
1: Last week was so full of news, we totally forgot about this. An executive order from President Donald Trump is meant to prevent U.S. companies from using technology produced by companies owned by, controlled by, or subject to jurisdiction or direction of adversarial foreign countries. What that really means is the U.S. government is trying to freeze out Chinese telecom giant Huawei. Case in point, earlier this week, Google announced it has suspended any business with Huawei that requires the transfer of proprietary hardware, software, or technical services. Huawei will only be able to use the public version of Android and will not have access to the Google apps and services. In practice, existing Huawei smartphones will largely continue to function as normal, though the devices may lose artificial intelligence capabilities and other protocols that rely on Google infrastructure. Then, the U.S. government backtracked, allowing the Treasury Department to sign off on some existing Huawei business, but it's not allowing any new business. So, Greg, what's really going on here?
0: Yeah, this was a mess this week and it all started because of Google's announcement. Um Google said around, I believe it was Sunday of last week that they you know were going to stop uh updating Huawei phones. And we know that Android across the world is the most popular mobile operating system right. and Huawei sells very very cheap, very very accessible phones to a large, you know, global population. So suddenly we had a really, really big crisis on our hands. And then on Monday, uh, the Commerce Department sort of backtracked because it had put Huawei on the entities list, which basically said, you know, a company gets put on the entities list. They're not outright banned, but you have to go through so many hurdles and so many layers of red tape to even do business with a company on the entity list that it's effectively like, why don't we just find somebody else to do business with? But on Monday, the comms department said it's going to grant a 90-day license for mobile phone companies and broadband providers to work with Huawei to keep existing networks online and protect users from security risks And that means now that Google can send those software updates to Huawei phones through, I believe, August. So it just goes to show that this Huawei stuff, the ramifications of it haven't really been thought out by the administration. I mean, look, we can talk about the security implications of Huawei you know, uh, this entire podcast, if we wanted to, there really hasn't been any evidence that has been put forth. So you're, you're talking about now just messing with a global market that, you know, it, this is just a perfect example of what can happen. The ramifications of this were not well thought out. And you're, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see other companies be like, okay, well, we depend on Huawei too. Can we get an exemption? Which, well, if that comes to it, what are we all doing here?
1: Well, you know, and that's interesting. So we have a, a portfolio company um, where Huawei is one of their biggest customers. So, you know, we're sort of on watch to see sort of what happens um, to the company, um, because of this blacklist band
0: yeah, uh, I, I I keep coming back to it because it's just a sticking point in my mind the The ramifications of this, like it goes beyond what we've seen with like Kaspersky. I mean, Kaspersky is a big company in its own right, and there are other antivirus software providers out there. We're talking about one of the companies that really powers the the backbone to to just global telecommunications.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You, you
0: can't you can't just pull the plug on it. Like obviously they tried to pull the plug on it on Thursday or Friday and by Monday they were already backtracking. Uh, this just goes to show that this administration it, it, it's it's all Just tied to the trade war. It's all just saber rattling, and nobody's really thinking about the actual business ramifications and the actual technological ramifications that go into stuff like this. So I would not be surprised if we continue to see backtracking here. This just wasn't really well thought out.
1: Yeah, but that backtracking works for big companies, but it's the smaller companies that are really going to sort of pay the price um, in this because they don't have the political capital or. the capital itself to, to fight this in any way. And if that's one of their biggest customers, they're kind of screwed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's really a shame because this affects like not just business across the world, but looking here in America too, there's been uh, a lot going on with trying to get 5g and trying to get that caught up with the rest of the world and trying to close the digital divide and, and get more, people involved in rural broadband and get broadband out to people that really don't have a choice beyond one or maybe two internet service providers in their area. Those ISPs and and that infrastructure that needs to go into setting up rural broadband, a lot of that depends on Huawei because Huawei sells cheap stuff. So you're talking about you know affecting the the business of some domestic companies that are like okay well w- w- why w- we don't see any issues and i don't understand why our company needs to bear the brunt of this when it's supposed to be the free market so all of this could really be furthered if there was just some piece of evidence that showed that Huawei was an intelligence liability for the US and we just haven't seen it yet. So now it's just becoming more and more of a mess. So political parties in Europe and the US have cybersecurity practices that fail to meet basic standards, leaving them vulnerable to hackers and foreign influence operations, according to a report by security researchers with Security Scorecard. An assessment of 29 political parties in 11 countries released on Tuesday found that a party in France relies on end-of-life technology and has not had a security update in four to five months. There's also a strain of malicious software emanating from an IP address assigned to an economic subcommittee of the European Union in Brussels – And security researchers, director of threat intelligence, Paul Gagliardi, said, while American political parties have improved their security since 2016, the DNC and Republican National Committee still also have weak spots. So Jen, do you get the sense that 2020 is just going to be a repeat of 2016?
1: I mean, look, it probably will be. Hopefully it becomes more secure. And, you know, and putting this out in the news now, you know, might force the the RNC and the DNC to um, fix the weak spots. but but who knows? And there really isn't still like a best practices of this is exactly what you should do. And, you know, in reality, there's probably not enough really smart people um, working on in either of these committees to to do this and implement um, the secure measures.
0: Right. And I think a lot of it, the the committees themselves, the DNC and the RNC, their own internal cybersecurity is one thing. But then when you got... To talking about the actual campaigns. Campaigns are just so temporary. Like, no one's going to be standing up servers or, you know, setting up, um, you know, like corporate email servers or any sort of corporate infrastructure. I mean, they, you could start a campaign and it could be dead in a month. So, why would you sink money into actually placing an infrastructure uh, there? So, with that, there's just always going to be inherent vulnerabilities that go into the cybersecurity of political campaigns. Right. So I'm not really sure what the DNC and the RNC could do further but um it's definitely got to be top of mind for um, campaigns. I know the FEC just ruled earlier this week that uh, Harvard's nonprofit can can offer free cybersecurity tools to campaigns. And that's on top of a list of companies like Symantec and Centrify and I believe Palo Alto, Silence come to mind. That,
1: that makes offer it so met- confusing. You know, it just, you know, another company offering services. How do I pick which one is good? And, you know, and... These are probably not people that are amazing at this that are that are picking these things. And so, if ten or fifteen different companies are saying this is what you should do and how you should do it, it becomes really hard and probably not going to solve anything.
0: Right, and that's where I think the um, the national committees should come in to say, "Hey, look, here's just you know a booklet, or here is we're, we're going to have a ninety minute." Um, Seminar that says, "Here's what these products do. Here's what your your risk model looks like. It's up to you now to do that. I mean, at at the end of the day, the DNC and the RNC are just going to have to do all that they can do. But um, I, I think it's up to convincing the campaigns of you know what is needed and what is right. We've seen some campaigns." take some, some strides. I know that um, Elizabeth Warren's campaign, they have some expenditures where I believe they bought their campaign staff keys, which is a, a fantastic, easy, basic way to install some sense of cybersecurity over right. over, you know the the communications for the, the campaign. So it's just easy, easy stuff like that that needs to be um, brought to mind. But yeah, going back to this report, I mean, you're right. It, it is tough because everything is so federated and so temporary that I think more knowledge needs to come from the committees on their own.
1: All right, so let's talk about an APT group that breached um, the DNC. So the malware sample that US Cyber Command uploaded to virus total last week, is still involved in active attacks, according to multiple researchers. Experts from Kaspersky Lab and Zone Alarm say that they have linked the malware with APT28, the same hacking group that breached the DNC during the 2016 election cycle. A variant of the malware is being used in ongoing attacks, hitting targets in Central Asian nations and the Czech Republic as recently as last week. The malware sharing program which Cyber Command launched last year, is intended to bolster defenses against adversaries. Greg, is this program working?
0: I would say that this program is definitely working because uh, Cyber Command put this up on their Twitter feed and on VirusTotal last week. And Kaspersky and Zone Alarm were the first two companies to flag it as malicious. So they were obviously watching these campaigns that hit the Central Asian nations and Czech Republic. But then by the time that we were getting ready to publish this story, we double checked Virus Total, and it went from two companies finding this malware malicious to 41 now oh, wow. there are there are 71 companies that virus or 71 products that virus total monitors but from to jump from 2 to 41 in the span of like 72 hours that's a really really big jump and that's really really good and i would imagine that that was the goal on the part of cyber command to say hey let's put this out on the web. Let's make sure that you know the community realizes that, hey, this is uh, bopping around and that this is really, really bad stuff. And the community has responded to that. So it's proof that the program definitely is working. Now, we've heard from other security researchers as well that said, okay, this is a good start, but we want more context around the samples that are put up there, which I can totally agree with. The more information that gets out there, the better. But uh, you know, I, I think this this program by which Cyber Command is sharing signatures to Virus Total has been around for six to eight months, so we're off to a good start. But I wouldn't be surprised if we see things change pretty quickly. So Google has notified an unspecified number of its enterprise customers that their passwords have been stored in plain text inside the company's internally encrypted systems due to a technical issue that has existed since 2005. I was in college in 2005, so that's a long time. (laughs) This issue does not affect free Gmail consumer accounts, but only the enterprise user base. Suzanne Frey, vice president of engineering for Google's cloud division, wrote in a blog post that the company has been conducting a thorough investigation and has seen no evidence of improper access to or misuse of the affected credentials. Jen, I hope you changed your password if you use Gmail for work.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. So, you know, can you really trust them to be conducting a thorough investigation given that they've had passwords in plain text on their server since 2005? The, clearly they weren't really investigating um, internal systems of what they might be doing wrong. Yeah.
0: Um, what. I, I think that it's, I guess it's difficult is the, the easiest way to say it. And I know that that's vague, but uh look the larger these systems get uh, you know the the bigger flaws we're going to see i shouldn't say the bigger flaws we're going to see but you know you run the possibility of having more and more flaws and and more and more coding errors and it just sort of happens. Now I'm not trying to defend Google here at all. Uh, they're they're Google. They have you know more resources than 97% of the companies out there. So they should be able to find ways to fix this stuff.
1: Yeah, you know, but sometimes I think maybe we're better off just starting over, just sort of purging um, any company that had online passwords in like the early 2000s Maybe even up to like 2010, just getting rid of it, getting rid of everything they've got and just starting over um, and, and maybe we get rid of some problems.
0: Yeah. Uh, look, we could talk about secure coding for a while. Secure coding is something that has just recently come into vogue and it gets into you know this philosophical discussion of always shipping code, get stuff out there as fast as possible, ship, ship, ship. And if, if, you know, there's security holes in it, we'll fix it later if we have to fix it at all. Um, it's, It's clear that that is not always the best way to go about this stuff. So, look, this could have been really, really worse in terms of where this was stored. I mean, the fact that it was stored, you know, in internal encrypted systems is... Okay, but we know that Google has been breached by China, you know, further than or closer to now than this 2005 benchmark that they put out. So it is worthwhile if you've gotten a message from, you know, your your internal G Suite that you really should uh, change that password. Even if your internal G Suite hasn't been around since 2005, you've only had uh, – I, I know we – use it and it's only been around since like 2015, 2016 or something like that. But I mean, yeah.
1: Well, we don't know when it was breached, like 2005 to what? I mean, what's the end date on that?
0: Oh, well, no, but just, it was this issue. It's existed since 2005. So going all the way back, but I think the the China hack of Google occurred Mm -hmm. like 2006, 2007 around Mm -hmm. that time. So I'm not saying that the two are linked, but there's a non the, the, there's a non-zero chance of that happening. Like you can't say definitively that that wasn't uh, right. messed with. So it, yeah these these bigger bigger systems are something to keep a watch on, and secure coding practices can really really go a long way.
1: So you can add drones to a list of Chinese-made tech that U.S. officials believe could be laden with security vulnerabilities. DHS warned industry on Monday that the combination of the sensitive data collected by drones and the requirement of Chinese citizens to support national intelligence activities makes the Chinese-made technology a significant risk to U.S. companies. Manufacturers and vendors can build in malware or collect data from your UAS device without your knowledge, the advisory says. Greg, you've been talking about this for a while, right?
0: Yeah, um we had to talk about this at CyberTalks last year in DC where we talked to some government experts that are looking at ways to use drones inside government agencies. Now, let's think about that. We're talking about very, very sensitive uh, data whether it's environmental data, whether it is um, you know, agricultural data, whether it is land data, whether it is, I mean, law enforcement data, you could go on and on and on because the uses of drones are ubiquitous. And therefore there's all different types of data that are being uploaded to these drones. So are you protecting those drones? Like, are you sure they're encrypted? Do you think that the Chinese drones that are, you know, contracted to be a part of government agencies, are are we just going to, you know, totally believe that they're safe, I wouldn't make that wager. And I think that a lot of people are in the same boat. So they turned around and have been talking to DHS about it. And DHS said, okay, yeah, um, you you might want to be careful with the way that you're using your drones and who exactly you're buying these drones from.
1: I mean, I think this just really argues um, for not doing business with companies like Huawei, we shouldn't be using Chinese-made tech
0: the inherent security problems are an issue. They, they really, really are an issue. And I don't think so – I mean, I, I partly think of the Huawei argument with this, but I also think about all of the cheap tech that they made. Like, think of all the cameras that we talk about and how their IP is exposed when you go on Shodan to do a search, and that's how Mirai spread. You don't think right. that that same tech is inside these drones because I, I – can say, I would say 97%, 98% sure that it's the same tech. So if the security vulnerabilities are the same in the cameras and all of that other equipment that's being cheaply produced in China, you can bet it's in those drones. And do you really want to have that liability on your hands, especially if those drones are inside the federal government? It's a really, really big problem. So off to another big problem. Real-time bidding is a targeted advertising technique that occurs when a user visits a website and their personal information is broadcast to hundreds of marketers who bid in a near instant auction to get their ad in front of that specific website visitor. It's also the protocol that went awry in the Twitter breach we talked about on last week's show. Now, data security advocates are taking action against real-time bidding, saying it sends individuals information often without adequate protective measures. The technique is the subject of four new alleged violations of the EU's GDPR and was a topic of congressional testimony during a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing this week. Jen, I feel the more and more we hear about ad tech, the more and more it irks me about the amount of data that's just flinging around the internet.
1: I'm still not over just the the amount of ad fraud in terms of US dollars a year. So it's just, to me, this is just absolutely amazing.
0: Right. And the real-time bidding is a big way that ad fraud uh, occurs. So yeah. I am not surprised to hear that people are like, wait a minute. Okay. GDPR is here. So let's start to examine the ways that the, the, you know, the data is being passed around the internet. And wait, you mean to tell me that all of that collection data, I mean, think about all the stories that have come out in the past few weeks about how much data is collected by Facebook and how <laughs> much those, the, the Facebook API and the software development kits talk to other internet sites, um, even if you're not logged into Facebook or anything like that. I wouldn't be surprised if that same network is being plugged into these other networks that are using real-time bidding to sell their ads and to get ads in front. So think about all the lax data issues that we've had with Facebook. You don't think that they're going to be on top of real-time bidding as well? Absolutely. I'm I'm not surprised that real-time bidding hasn't been at the focal point of more and more data leakage and more and more data breaches that we've been talking about.
1: You know, the more and more we um, do this podcast, the more I think it's a good idea to live off the grid.
0: (laughs) Well, I I don't think we're ever going to get that far, but I do think that really, look, Facebook deserves all of the bad press that they've been getting because they have just—they really haven't cared about privacy. But I think that you know, there's only going to be so much that you can get out of Facebook, and Facebook, for as big as they are, is only one entity in this greater ecosystem. So if you want to start to get into the ISPs or you want to start to get into the ad tech um, marketplace, then I think you're really, really going to start to see how little privacy there is on the internet. And you're right, that is a frightening thing.
1: For sure. So fraud attacks from rogue mobile applications increased by more than 300%, up to more than 41,000 incidences in the first quarter of this year. According to RSA Research, it's proof digital scammers are stealing victims' personal information in new ways, preferring rogue mobile applications and account takeover attacks, after a generation of using phishing as their primary hacking technique. That jump in rogue apps coincides with an uptick in research from other security companies reporting malware that steals victims' information by appearing as legitimate programs. So, Greg, it looks like we've got an app boom with consequences here, yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, and we were just talking about app fraud. This was, or not app fraud, ad fraud. This is yeah. another spoke of the wheel when it comes to ad fraud. Um, you know, you look at some recent stories. There was a really, really good story on BuzzFeed about this Android app called Vidmate that when you downloaded it, it it allowed users to download videos from like YouTube or WhatsApp or any other place on the internet where you're watching video. But what actually happened is the app defrauded people by secretly subscribing them to paid services. And then if that's not enough, we've written stories where I believe it was Trend Micro had some research that came out in January, where there were like flappy bird knockoffs that had about you know, 100,000 downloads that were just straight up siphoning data from people overall. So it's just uh, amazing the amount of like just cruft and crud out there that people just take for granted. And it's really just stealing tons of data and costing people and enterprises just tons, tons, tons of money. And also, I mean, it also goes into, I mean, these apps are also getting into uh, credit card uh, transactions as well. I mean, they help facilitate these fraudulent transactions, which are also known as, uh, I I believe like the fraud term is CNP, which just means card not present, where I I, I think this same research found that the average value of uh, a, a CNP transaction rose to... $400 as opposed to like $215, and it's all traced back to the mobile ecosystem. So it's it's just wild how much insecurity there really is when it comes to the apps that we use on our phone.
1: You know, and if you sort of think about it, like I, you know, the apps that I put on my phone um, have a purpose. I know what they are and who the company is behind them. You know, but I certainly let my nieces um, download apps from the app store, um, all kinds of rant So I end up with like five or six or seven, you know, little kids um, games on my phone. I mean, who knows, you know, where those came from right? Um, when they do them. So who knows what kind of data that I that I breach. So that's, you know, that's an interesting um you know, thought maybe I shouldn't be letting them do that. Right, and
0: I would say the apps themselves—if you're downloading it from the Apple App Store—are pretty good in turn. Right. I would say pretty good. They're, you're pretty sure that they're safe. Apple does a good job of making sure that those apps are safe. However, those apps are still collecting data, so yeah. you, you you have to realize that. Okay, what company is developing this app? And if they're collecting my data, like what exactly are they collecting? And then what happens if an app developer goes out of business? What are they going to do to sort of liquidate their assets? Well, they have all of this data and they're going to sell this data somewhere else. And are you really going to trust that, that, you know, they're going to be altruistic with their data? I wouldn't trust that. They're just looking to offload it for money. So it's it's a really, really um, interesting Part of the ecosystem to watch because, yeah, uh, rogue apps and the way the data gets spread around the internet is um, alarming. So, with the private industrial cybersecurity market thriving, DHS is pushing for closer coordination with experts on the front line of defending facilities like power plants from hackers. In speeches to vendors last week, DHS officials said they wanted to help put companies on a more proactive defensive posture to thwart hacking threats to industrial environments. DHS's Jeanette Manfred told the attendees of the Hack the Capital conference that DHS wants the ICS community, and those are both the vendors and the operators of the systems, to be able to be more empowered to defend themselves. And part of that empowerment means they have information that's relevant to that defense. Jen, do you agree with the notion that the investments here are driving the security efforts for DHS?
1: I mean, they probably are. Um you know, spending money on security probably does drive the security efforts.
0: What have you seen particularly in your realm when it comes to the industrial cybersecurity market? Do you agree that it is thriving? Because I would say that it, that it is. I mean, more and more of these startups continually pop up.
1: I mean, we're seeing more startups. Um, you know, obviously I think it's, it's the most critical um, security problem we're having. I think it's... Um, I think we're, there's a lot less companies in that space than there are in, in, in other spaces. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, the federal government needs to continue to have, um, federal funding for these programs like SBIRs to try to create more startups to, you know, to, um, solve some of the bigger problems that no one's been able to solve yet. Um, you know, hopefully we're seeing, um, these problems solved, but, Yeah, I think that we have to throw a lot of money at it or it's not going to happen.
0: Right, right. And speaking of throwing money at a lot of things, um, there was a lot of money thrown around this week. So let's talk about uh, the different funding and acquisition stuff that went on. Uh, First off, the security training vendor NoBefore before has acquired Culture, spelled interestingly, it is not the word, it is C-L-T-R-E, and they are a Norwegian company that specializes in measuring client security preparedness. Culture is a small firm that created its own security culture framework, which is meant to provide companies with information about how their security culture changes over time. The framework measures corporate behavior, responsibilities, cognition, norms, compliance, communication, and attitudes, and all of those factors relate to security posture over time. And then on the venture side, off O or off zero, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, Bellevue, Washington-based maker of Identity as a Service platform, raised $103 million in Series E funding. Sapphire Ventures led the round and was joined by Bessemer, K9, Trinity, Meritech, Telestra and World Innovation Lab. C Amplify, a New York based provider of security orchestration, automation, and response, raised $30 million in Series C funding, with Georgian partners leading that round. And finally, Gardacore, a Tel Aviv based company developed workload protection solutions for data centers and public clouds, announced that it raised $60 million in Series C funding, which brings its total amount raised to $110 A uh, new investor of Comer Capital led the round with participation from Battery Ventures, 83 North, TPG Growth, Greenfield Partners, DTCP, PartTech, Access Industrial. Everybody wants a part of GardaCore. Okay. So Jen, <laughs> what do you think about this week? Look,
1: VCs can't throw enough money at cybersecurity companies. <laughs>
0: Clearly. So,
1: you know, we continue to, to see all kinds of um, firms enter into cybersecurity. You know, so... That first one is interesting. I, the the culture, I guess that got acquired. Yes. I mean, that just doesn't seem um, something that I would think about throwing money at. Like that's just not something I would write a check for, um, without a really. I don't know. I just just not that interesting to me.
0: Right. It's interesting in the fact that I think No Before. I don't know their funding offhand, but I know that No Before is among the leaders when it comes to like security awareness startups. Yeah. So um, they're clearly growing if they have uh, the the resources to buy somebody that is very clearly in their space. So um I, I, I think that you're starting well, that's to not
1: necessarily speak. true. Oh, okay. I mean- well, I mean, I and again I don't know any details about this, so that may be true for this, but you know, you see all the time um startups buying other startups, and that typically means that they're agreeing to hire um the team um and then give maybe some equity of the other entity to the founders of the one they're acquiring. So there's there's all kinds of deals every day that that happen that just don't really exchange any capital.
0: Oh, okay. Um yeah, in terms of the deal weren't disclosed, so that may very well be what happened. But um, no, I know like no before. I think, um, I mean, there are a ton. I I, I don't want to say tons. There are a number of other companies in this space. And I think that you're going to start to see more and more companies pop up because I think, I mean, we've talked – about tons of different companies in the space that solve a lot of like technical problems, but it's going to get to the point where you're going to have to translate it into normal language inside an enterprise. And hey, um, if there are some, you know, technical people that know how to talk about this stuff on a normal, you know, normal everyday English level, uh, I, I think that's going to be good for enterprises overall.
1: Yeah, I mean, yes, but there's just so many problems that just don't get solved um, at enterprises around cybersecurity. So sort of adding another layer of spend um, to something that maybe isn't as necessary as other things to me just seems um, like just a lot of noise added to the space.
0: Okay. So what do you think about this very, very large Series E for this Autho? 0 uh, Company at all this identity as a service space. I, I don't remember seeing a raise this big with something tied to identity management.
1: You know, they're they're still predicting that identity management is going to be the biggest, um, you know, sort of cybersecurity spend bucket. So it makes sense to me that companies are raising capital to to capture more market share. I mean, this is this is still probably you know, one of the biggest cybersecurity issues companies have. Um, so I'm not surprised. Um, obviously, Sapphire Ventures has is, is got deep pockets. So, you know, it sort of just makes sense to me.
0: Do you think that there's any worry for startups in this space that they're just going to have to compete with, like, the bigger even public companies? Because I feel like all of the other bigger, like, multi-service providers have identity services packed in as well. So, do you think that that's uh, an issue investing in this space at all?
1: I don't. So, I think it's an issue investing in this space when you're talking about you know, a hundred million dollars, fifty million dollars, like big amounts. But I think we're just going to start seeing more and more sort of rollups. I think we're going to see some of these bigger companies start acquiring these smaller ones. You know, at it, it exits that you know look like fifty million dollars, look like a hundred million dollars, look like twenty million dollars um, to add the capabilities. I just don't think while there's a big market for, um, things like identity as a service, um, you just don't need that many players in the space. And so I think you're going to start seeing them sort of roll up over time and look, you know, selling out for 10 million or 50 million or a hundred million dollars is, is a great win, um, for many of these companies, obviously not, you know, in the case of this company, this is a, a bigger company, right? I mean, they're raising 103 million in a series E. Um, so this is one of the, I assume one of the giants that will acquire other companies. Um, So, no, I guess I'm not worried about um, Series A funding of um, identity management startups. You know, am I worried about Series C and D? Probably, Um, but definitely not at the A level. They still have lots of room to get acquired for prices that make everybody happy.
0: Okay. All right. And that is it for the news this week. So now we will get to our interview with Justin Shattuck. Justin has some, I would say, passionate feelings about what he does when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, Really, really uh, interesting interview. So check it out. Okay, joining us now is Justin Shattuck, the Director of Threat Research for Baffin Bay Networks. Justin, thanks for hopping aboard with
2: us. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: So can you tell us a little bit more about um, your background and how you got started in cybersecurity?
2: Yeah, I actually, I, I probably have a story similar to so many others. I think I just kind of tell it differently because of the way I look at things, but really it kind of started uh, my career path itself. You know, when you look on LinkedIn, you look at somebody's jobs and their resume and what, who they've worked for. And, and I, I often ask myself like, Oh, I wonder how this is presented to people when they, when they look at this. Um, you know, I've worked for, you know everything from like large cosmetics companies to you know enterprise, you know big network company, and so what it actually is with the the focus that I've kind of followed is essentially finding organizations that I can work with that I've over time in working with them or working within the organization had a huge lack uh, in security where they weren't focused on anything, and so I call it best it's like imposter syndrome, right? I don't I don't really meet up to the same. Um, the same aspects. I don't. I not come. To, I didn't come into the industry like so many other people. I didn't focus on security. I wasn't a security researcher or a programmer that I devoted myself to like secure coding or, you know, security awareness. I was a guy that found myself, uh, you know, as a, as an example, found myself in a building where an organization had deployed, you know, uh, dozens of wireless access points. And this is back in the, you know, early two thousands. They deployed, you know, dozens of wireless access points and these symbol RF barcode. Uh, kind of readers, which are essentially these terminals they would wear on their wrist, and they have a little barcode scanner on their finger, you know, they could go around. Imagine Amazon these days, you know, you pick a package, you put it on a belt, it gets shipped. It's essentially the technology they used to track, all these, you know, packages moving around this warehouse. But the reality is they didn't understand the wireless technology at all. So they had a company come in and install these devices and then ultimately deploy it, and you had all this data exfiltration. And so, or yeah, the possibility for it, and that's how I saw it. And that, I think that's the moment I could say I kind of got into security, was that moment that I immediately kind of noticed, like, "Oh wow, this is going to be bad." Right? There's there's some aspects of this that people aren't really thinking through, and so I just found those opportunities. You know, I went from one position to another position and found more difficult opportunities, more challenging opportunities. Um, it wasn't actually until recently that I found myself in a position that I was willing to kind of accept any kind of public title or public name, you know, that that even put me in the industry, so to speak. So. That's,
0: that's, oh wow, this is going to be bad seems like another great podcast name for security (laughs) because I feel like every week there's some news that it's basically can be summed up with, oh wow, this is going to be bad.
2: Yeah, it's, it's always a hot mess. (laughs) That's what I've been saying lately. It's like, ah, this is just a hot mess. And so then when you get into like, you know, how it comes into threat protection or security, it's, it's just applying all of those same, you know, that, The same skills and talents that I used, you know, previously for whether it be managing an email server, but now it's, you know, maintaining the health and welfare of an email server while also being very privacy conscious for the users and, you know, the people that are using it and interfacing with it.
0: So before we get into more and more about what you're doing on the threat research side, so explain what Baffin Bay Networks
2: does and how the company has evolved. All right. So at Baffin Bay, what we do is we provide customers with flexible pieces of technology that allow them to look in and essentially discern all, all, all the cruft that's happening on their network. So we perform DDoS mitigation and web application firewall protection. So essentially layer four, layer seven protection on customer networks. And then what happened is how it's evolved is Baffin Bay actually acquired uh, a company earlier this year that um, I had founded called Lorica. And so Lorica is now, uh, you know, gone, but it's now Baffin and Bay. And so our team came in and we now provide the threat research and data, um, you know, the data lake, so to speak, for Baffin Bay. And so many of us had come, you know, had already been involved in the industry from other organizations, so we're familiar with what the pain points and the challenges that kind of exist, as we saw them. And so to be able to provide something that's, you know, affordable to customers, so it's within reach, um, we actually have to. Uh, we've identified, you know, where we where we can, you know, pull people away from the problem set and make that, you know, solution more efficient by way of maybe machines or the fancy words of the day, machine learning. And essentially drive the price down a little bit um, or make it more affordable by using machines where we can, right? Because people are very, very expensive.
1: So you're a threat researcher. Tell us about something you're researching.
2: Right now, one of the things we're actually tracking is we, the is, in terms of threat research, what we're working on as a team is essentially expanding the footprint that we use to monitor attacks kind of at a global level. And so that's really where we're putting a lot of our, a lot of our energy as a team. I mean, we're, we're still a very small team as a whole. There's five of us. Uh, focused on the threat research aspect. But one of the things that we're actually tracking is this this kind of evolution of how attacks are becoming much more personalized. And the reason the reason why that's important is because those attacks become much more difficult to discern. And so the, the actual attackers we're noticing, right, they're becoming more sophisticated. We're seeing, you know, more and more breaches that happen all the time. I mean, all of us at this point have had our data breached, probably, you know, a minimum of three times. I used to people used to joke about like, oh, I was finally breached. Well, the finally breached comment, right? We don't hear that much anymore. And it's not it's like, oh, again, again, again. But as more and more that information becomes public knowledge, essentially, right? When it's whether it's leaked on the clear net or the deep web or the dark web or the mustard colored web, what ends up <laughs> happening is right, you have all this data. And so, you know, if I want to know, all right, how do I fish Greg? Right? I just, I don't know, go out and look at any of the three breaches that I could find that maybe have Greg's information and Now I can try to trick him because I have his latest, you know, LinkedIn password, right? So I can go from the professional standpoint and then get some contact list information and then, you know, do the whole extortion campaign that is, you know, so popular. If I have something embarrassing, I'm going to send it to all your contacts. But they're just, they're becoming even more and more sophisticated from that. I mean, we have, this is what I do, guys. I rant, see? But now we have all these tools that are trickling down, right? You have everyday, I I call an everyday criminal, whether it be a script kitty or, you know, any, anyone else, essentially, we have these tools trickling down from the likes of the NSA, and you know, we're finding them in the hands of everyday people. So you went, on our network, we watch, you know, attacks all day. And 445 is still, you know, one of the top ports that we see traffic driven to on the Internet. Okay. And so ever since WannaCry, right, that's, I mean, what it shows us is just the continuous use of the same exploits, people hunting the same vulnerabilities um, from those tools, and so those it's it's just we're dealing with we're we're watching the same types of events and the the exploits right the vulnerabilities that they're they're actually attacking and using um, are becoming more difficult to discern as as things just become you know more and more personalized so to speak whether it's you know going after people or going after people's systems. So look, this the past couple
0: of weeks have just been you know there's been a flood of of really really bad exploits and vulnerabilities and everything it's like a concentrated hot mess as you would say over the past 2 weeks but you know we were talking previously but before the interview started uh, about how you think that even though you know all of this news is going on that a lot of what we're seeing in terms of attacks is cyclical so can you expound a little bit on what we were talking about that you know things are just cyclical and we're dealing with a lot of the same stuff that we were dealing with In the 90s, it just happens to be, you know, whether it's more concentrated or like you said, more personal, it's, you know, how do you adjust to that when you're doing your
2: research? Yeah, I think one of the, you know, one of the examples I speak to a lot is the, the fileless malware. It's just one of the most recent examples. It is this, you know, this pattern that just continually repeats itself. And it's just this ongoing evolution where, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, something, you know, something happens. Take fileless malware. We have, you know, the first kind of reports of fileless malware coming out. And then, you know, that's back in, like, what, 94, 95, mid-90s. So then you you fast forward. Here we are in, you know, 2019, and we have, um, you know, in 2018, I can speak to a little bit easier. But as we have, you know, more attacks that come out that are essentially, you know, imagine something coming in through, uh, on a Windows machine that, you know, it gets privilege escalation. It uses PowerShell. It loads, you know, it loads the actual malware um, that's dropped. And for example, then places it on the host, not as an actual file, you know, a binary that think gets executed. Maybe it stores it as a binary to essentially keep the source there. But what ends up happening is it you know, injects itself into the registry so that it's continually running on boot, but it places itself in memory. We can edit that part out. I don't need to explain what fileless malware is to people at all. But what ends up happening is that same, that same pattern repeats itself in 2018, and it's presented as this new, haunting, super mega attack, right? It's this... Fileless malware is just you know the, the the worst thing to happen to the internet. Essentially, you know it's always what happens with all of these articles. Every story comes out; it's the worst you know worst possible thing that can happen to the internet. But at its core, it always comes back around to like very very simple things. Humans, right? We people. The the human impact part of all of these stories is really the the, the emphasis of any focus that I have or the emphasis of any research. But you take, you know, we have individuals that you know we want. As consumers, I guess to, to back up, we have consumers, we want cheap products. We want cheap products just in the sense of we all like to save money. So you have like uh the, the cheap cameras you find on Amazon, right? You have the ten dollar camera, the twenty-five dollar camera, and I'm speaking to the products like the WISE cameras, if you're you know right. you're familiar. And 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 you know I'm staring at a wise camera right now. I'm not this I'm not trying to like you know pump a product or anything like that, but when you compare one of those, you know, against like the ten dollar camera. The technology inside of those cameras are probably very similar, right? Using like an ESP8266 or ESP32 style chip. They're, they share a lot of the same internal hardware. They share a lot of the same you know, software components from a firmware that's being baked as well. And I don't mean specifically wise, but specifically those cheap cameras. So when you share that technology under the hood, when you're using very similar hardware and you're using some of the same software components, you're kind of intermingling, what you end up is you have a lot of products that all utilize the same hot mess, right? Right. You may have wise who's responsible and actually goes out and, you know, patches problems as they occur. And then you have a company that doesn't. And so one of the issues is you end up with this mitigation strategy of we'll just throw that one in the trash or patch it. Right. So that that is what I'm getting at is that is a huge underlying problem. The fact that we have we buy products unknowingly, you know, as an uneducated public, we buy products that that aren't going to get patched. Where the mitigation strategy, if that device gets owned, is simply to throw it in the trash. It's a $10 device. It's not worth it for that company to patch it, right? It's right. more effort, more energy, more expense to hire a developer to do anything with it from a security patching standpoint than it is to just rebuild, rebake, and remanufacture them. So, on the human side of Things, you really look at it as more
0: of just like the actual interaction between humans and technology and not necessarily from like a cyber hygiene standpoint, because we hear that human impact stuff a lot. But I think it's just people trying to find a nice way to say, OK, let's blame the users because the users are stupid. But I think you're looking at it at a different way, which I think is actually a better way of looking at it in that th- there's just the reality of the situation and
2: how humans and technology work together there's 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 a there's a gentleman i work with and he has a huge pet peeve um, and i love it And know the the pet peeve is essentially like we as people's absolute failure to recognize reality for what it is right and so this exact story i mean reality is in front of us this problem is not going to go away right i, I don't maybe you agree with me maybe you don't i don't think it's going anywhere it's going to be here i'm going to still have my job doing this maybe not with baffin maybe not with you know some other big enterprise company, whatever it may be. But, like, I'm still going to have research to do, right? I'm still going to have a topic. I'm still going to have something of interest. This this problem itself isn't going to go anywhere. It improves generationally, I feel like. And I say I feel like because I don't have any kind of, like, specific evidence that shows, you know, statistically. So it would just be, like, you know, kind of, like, more statistical lies, so to speak, if I were to, to offer it. But... (laughs) <laughs> Not more statistical lies, but, you know, adding to the whole lies, damn lies, statistics kind of conversation. Okay. okay. But yeah, the, the human impact piece, I mean, and really, I think a lot of it comes with just course of study. I mean, I'm very, you know, myself, I'm very interested in cognitive psychology, you know, human computer interaction. Why does that power button have that red ring around it? You know, why, why do we gravitate to the buttons and the knobs and the switches and levers that we do? And that's interesting to me because then I get to flip it on its head and say, okay, now how do I trick Greg into pulling that lever? instead of pushing that button and so it's it's yeah there's the security side of okay you know how do we take um, you know how do we exploit this uh, you know take the whatsapp thing this week right how do we how do we send a call to somebody and steal some information how do we get some information from them and I'm not trying to dumb that down and make it seem simple that one's actually a right the whole background behind the whatsapp thing is seems very right. political and everything else. But when it comes to something like that, and now you're talking about phones, right, which is a great segue into the other huge piece of the human impact side of it, which is location, right? And then you have Twitter with the location data leak this week as well. But the the bigger aspect is we have devices, right? I don't know if you're using an Android or an iPhone. But at this point, I would say, you know, personally, i hope you're using an iPhone unless you have an official Google device, right? Because Google has essentially set us up into a situation where a lot of old Android devices are no longer getting updated. Right. Google's not a company that can't afford software developers to make sure that patches don't go out into old systems, right? Like, Google can definitely probably afford the engineers to make sure that you know KitKat still gets updates for the old, I don't know, Nexus Five device that some guy's still using because they can't afford an upgrade. Okay. But what's going to end up happening? Devices are no longer going to get updates because they're no longer, you know, on the hardware platform. And we, I understand that. You know, you want to, pe- you want your customers to be on relatively modern hardware. You know, it's, it's a way for you to forecast your revenue by selling more products, but it's also a way for you to kind of help control, you know, the hardware pieces that are in use by all of your software. And so I can understand both sides. But when you've already sold, you know, millions of devices that are out there running, you should definitely make, you know, I, I just think that supporting them in the case of from our industry is, is definitely a pro, right? It's not a con in the sense of the con being that when you no longer support these devices, now we have millions of devices that are going to be susceptible to new vulnerabilities because we know they're not going to get updates. Interesting. So switching gears a little bit,
0: um, I know that you have done research and have helped with various takedowns and helped support law enforcement agencies and tracking threat actors and roguish cyber activity. One of the big things over the past couple of weeks have been just this immense take down on the part of international law enforcement, FBI, Europol, looking into uh, the dark web and shutting down these dark web marketplaces. Have you done anything similar to that? And, and what goes into like the technical side of helping these law enforcement agencies get the details that they need to take down these different marketplaces on the dark web?
2: There's there's actually been a lot of takedowns over the last year in terms of activity on the dark web, you know, whether it be marketplaces or just kind of havens for activity. And I know the drug scene gets a huge, a huge amount of exposure, you know, when you have deep dot web went offline. Yeah. And I was actually very surprised to read that and realize, like, wow, I mean, they made you know millions of dollars and uh, or you know reported at least allegedly made millions of dollars in referral links to, you know, whatever these marketplaces, Hansa and Alpha, whatever, you know, they have all the I, anyways we've all probably read the articles wall street they have great names um but what's funny is you know wall street for example i tracked that one for for a, a quite a bit of time and i remember when it set up so it, it it gained popularity as another marketplace went offline and that was kind of the the reason to track that one specifically is all right this one's still fairly new how long is it going to take for everybody to jump ship right and so, as, as, as one marketplace went offline, and this is down, this is back, I think it was Alpha had gone offline, and so, so many users were looking for their new marketplace, I'm just kind of telling the story as I watched it unfold. And so, you have Wall Street growing, so you have all the technical problems, and so one of the things that people have to remember is, people are running these sites, right? They're not like, they're not always necessarily, you know, set up by, you know, professionals, so to speak. It's, it's not like I'm, you know, necessarily back there, you know, managing a server for somebody, you know, running on the dark web. And I don't mean, you know, me, Justin, just me as a professional, me as somebody who's been paid to do this. And so as these sites grow, right, I'm I'm fairly certain that they do not have access to say, you know, the best ADC equipment. It's not like they're deploying, you know, F5 big IP ADC load balancer proxies and such in front of their, you know, darknet markets. Because of the nature of what's trying to be done, right? Hiding, hiding something on the internet, keeping it anonymous, you know, I'm not providing any opportunity for data leakage for somebody like me to come along and find out where that server actually is, you know, hanging out on the internet. It takes a lot of work. It, it takes a great amount of work, right, to, to provide that protection when you're on the clear net, let alone now when you're on the dark net, which, you, you know, everybody's trying to attack essentially everything on the dark net all the time. And so it's much like trying to scan the IPv6 space. You're just kind of brute forcing it like crazy, looking for, you know, looking for hosts or you're just crawling the web, looking for onion links. And so when you have, you know, this boom of users, when you go from, you know, having 100 vendors to having over 2000 vendors over the course of a couple of months, and when you go from, you know, a couple thousand users to tens of thousands of users over a couple of days or weeks, that that overall increase in load on those servers means they have to scale. So now what's great is that's when there's great opportunities for identifying where that infrastructure lives, because as servers come up, you know, they oftentimes aren't orchestrated in a way where they're actually going to have... Air logs turned off in terms of nginx or apache and so a lot of times you actually end up hunting servers that are on the clear net excuse me on the clear net and then you know fingerprinting them and then tying them back to activity that we find uh, on the darknet. and so one of the really long campaigns that took place there was a forum that was um essentially become a haven for individuals you know kind of trading and propagating some of the like most vile content on the internet And so that actually, like with the Australian government and many others, it actually took a very long time to, you know, not just take over the site and take it down, but, you know, take it over, take it down, and then emulate it and actually run it for a good amount of time to collect information. And that's actually what ends up happening uh, that has the most benefit um, in terms of identifying, you know, in, in that specific campaign, you know, you're finding the producers of this content, the people that are distributing this content. Uh, much like in the drug industry side of it, you're looking for people who are, you know, manufacturing the drugs and distributing the drugs kind of at the top. But I did have the opportunity, you know, I've, 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 you know, talked to people as far as that, have, you know, sold things on the dark net or also buying things in terms of drugs specifically on the dark net. And not only is just the, the ease of it is there, right? And I don't mean the, the buying, it's just people can jump around and Right. We've we've essentially the Internet has you know, given us guides and how to videos for everything. I'm sure you know there's how to guides on how to buy things on the dark net on YouTube. And there's probably guides on how to set stuff up on the Internet on YouTube. And so as a researcher, you just constantly evaluate what everybody's doing. Right. You have to watch those videos, too. What are they doing? What technology are they using? Are they making any mistakes that I can take advantage of down the road? There's uh, a lot that goes into this stuff and it, and it's nice to
0: see you know, the mindset that goes into tracking what goes on on the dark web because this is, you know, it's obviously top of mind for, for law enforcement. There's a lot that goes into what needs to be done on the technical side to track.
1: So we like to end the interview with a random question and yours is um, what's your favorite city to travel to and why?
2: Oh man, my favorite city to travel to. Oh which era of Justin, if we're talking like Justin of the Mismit Youth, that's a different city than Justin presently that's dad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, luckily, my favorite city is not where Disneyland is yet, so that's good. No, I, I really, really love Tel Aviv. Uh, okay. Tel Aviv is probably one of my favorite cities. Um, fond of Tel Aviv 1, I mean, it has a great security scene. There's a lot of great work going on there. Um at least in terms of vibrant cities, it's just a very lively city. It's nothing like the, you know, it's Tel Aviv is nothing like the media kind of portrays. It's not what the West believes it to be. So to speak, it's a, a, an absolutely beautiful city. I love it. It's the food is great. The people are amazing. Who doesn't like hanging out on the Mediterranean? I mean, it's yeah. Awesome. All right. Now, now I want to book a flight to Tel Aviv. <laughs> there you go. All right, Justin, really appreciate you. hopping forward. Thanks for
0: your time. Thanks. Justin. Thanks. Have a good day. All right, and that is it for this week. Everybody have a wonderful Memorial Day. And uh, Jen, uh, you and I are going to spend at least some of our time over Memorial Day actually watching the crypto movie, right?
1: Absolutely. I'm headed to the airport today and I'm going to watch the movie there. So
0: we are going to watch this and then we are going to give you guys our unbridled (laughs) uncensored <laughs> review i can't wait to get into this we've talked about it before we checked rotten tomatoes it's at about a 20 percent. so we are in for a treat here so <laughs> no. can't wait for next week i think week.
1: Uh, greg this is probably going to be your favorite movie of all time oh, yeah,
0: absolutely why not i, I absolutely can't <laughs> wait all right everybody have a good holiday and we'll see you next week
1: stay curious